1: Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily email newsletter to stay on top of the latest news from China, or download our new and improved smartphone app, or visit the website, supchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. And while you are there, check out our new business news podcast, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, for a weekly roundup of top stories from Caixin.com. China's authoritative source for business and financial news. I am Kaiser Guo. I am coming to you from the Seneca South studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina today. I am joined remotely from a converted moonshine steel out in gold Holler in the backwoods outside of Nashville, Tennessee, by amateur mule skinner Jeremy Goldcorn. <laughs> Great people are, Jeremy. Hey, y'all. <laughs> So, today we are delighted to be joined by our good friend Tom Miller, uh, whose book is touring in support of his book right now. Yeah, his latest excellent work, which is called China's Asian Dream. Longtime listeners are going to remember Tom from his last book, which was called China's Urban Billion, uh, which was a Of course, about urbanization. Uh, Tom is senior analyst at Gavakal Research, and he works with the estimable Arthur Krober and Andrew Batson. Tom, congrats on the book, uh, which I devoured and really, really enjoyed. I actually thought it was like incredibly timing dropping as did a couple of months ahead of the whole Belt and Road forum thing in Beijing Uh, because it's kind of a marvelous explanation of just what Belt and Road is all about, said Tom. Well, welcome to North Carolina first. Thanks very much, Kaiser. It's great to be here. And welcome
0: back to Seneca. Cool. Yeah, Absolutely. Right? It's
2: my first time down in the South, so it's all very exciting for me. Right. Uh, so, uh, me- yeah.
0: Well, you know, this is the real America. Welcome to it, Tom. <laughs> um, w- one thing that really stands out about this book, uh, and I think really makes it work, is that it's a combination of analysis and on-the-ground reporting. Can you tell us about what went into the reporting for this book?
2: Right, so um, I travelled to around a dozen countries and regions, I would say, including Yunnan and Xinjiang, places like that in China.
1: All on that generous advance that Zed gave you, right? Um, that's right. Or yeah. you know, that three hundred
2: pounds I got for writing the book. So, guys, you know, don't write a book to make money, okay? Um, or but, don't no, I'm work really... for
0: Paul French, perhaps. Although, do... well, no, actually, yeah. the
2: book has nothing to do with Paul. Um, <laughs> in fact, this Paul one... was angry. No, when he no, found that, out I, that... I think Paul's fallen out with Zed because they. Oh, right, okay, I'm sorry. Um, anyway,
0: all right, just cut, um, we cut, shall cut get out. Let, on with. Um, let, no, they're great, they're a fantastic publisher. Let's just censor that from the podcast that doesn't make any sense <laughs> no it's not no okay. it's not
2: no seriously they need to kick up the ass um right so shall i start again
1: no, no. <laughs> keep going <laughs>
2: Right. So I traveled to around a dozen um, co- countries and regions for the book. So it took me about 18 months, two years of traveling. So um, I went to lots of funny little places like Kyrgyzstan, you know, Laos, Burma, Cambodia, Vietnam, Kazakhstan, Sri Lanka, India, among other places. So, yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of time on the ground talking to ordinary people, you know, sort of um, truckers, um, market traders. Yes, taxi drivers, but also think tank people, government ministers, officials monks, prostitutes, you name it, I spoke to everybody. So one of the most in- interesting places um, I went to was the Golden Triangle Special Economic Zone. So it's in the Golden Triangle, which is famous, of course, for its opium production. So this is where Laos, Burma and Thailand meet. And it's where you know um, the Mekong River um, forms the border of those three countries. And there's a special economic zone on, on the Laos side of, of, of the river. But you know it's literally, I'd say, a decent drive um, if you play golf um, over the river to Burma and to and to Thailand. And as soon as you walk into this special economic zone, which is basically 100 square kilometres um, of land, which is being held by a kind of Dongbei businessman on a 99-year lease. So it's almost like a mini Chinese colony.
1: And it's Macau, or the Mekong. It's, right?
2: it's cool, yeah. I'll, I'll get to that in a bit. But so when you walk into this place um, and, you know, immediately the, your, the time on your phone switches back, sorry, switches forward an hour into Chinese time. So, you know, suddenly your phone is on China mobile. Everyone is speaking Chinese. You know, you use um, Renminbi is the only currency there. Um, and at the centre of this place, there's this big kind of golden dome um, and a, a glitzy casino um, inside. So it's known as um, Macau on the Mekong. But it's more than just a kind King, of gambling King den. So King, King's Romans is called, yeah. yeah. So, but it's more than just a gambling den. So the guy behind this um, is trying to create a sort of a mini Chinese colony four hours from the Chinese border. So um, he's built a sort of Chinatown with noodle bars and noodle shops. There's, um, a, there's a monastery um, which is staffed with monks from Wu Taishan, who he's flown in. And then around the corner, there's the Street um, of a Hundred Flowers, which is um, staffed with imported prostitutes from China. Very friendly, they are too. But, you know, it's, it's just a little piece of China in Laos, um, which is it's one of the more interesting places I went to. Also, when I was leaving, I saw a bunch of excavators flattening land. And I asked why. And I was, I was informed that they're building an international airport to fly in punters from Shanghai and from Quiming. Um, and they have a sort of stable of, of kind of hummers, stretched hummers and, and other sort of ludicrous cars. I think it was a Bentley or something. I can't remember. But anyway, it's a, it's, it's a place for, for wealthy Chinese people to go and spend their money.
0: How does this connect to the broad theme of the book, China's Asian Dream?
2: Right. Well, um, the Asian Dream is, is really a play off the idea of the China Dream or the Chinese Dream, Zhongguomeng. Um, and it's sort of my interpretation of the way that China's foreign policy um is going and so very very briefly i th- i think that you know the way China or the Chinese state xi jinping certainly views chinese history is that you know uh not very long ago 200 250 years ago china was still the great civilization state in asia um you know by far the biggest economy um the country that other countries in the region um, looked up to. And I think there's a sense in which they want to restore that primacy. So, you know, Xi Jinping defined the Chinese dream as the great rejuvenation of the Chinese people. And I think the important word there is xing, or rejuvenate, restore. And, you know, um, under Xi Jinping, China has been pursuing a much more proactive for- foreign policy, you know, and China is trying to become a genuine sort of global player, if you like. But I think this is really focused in the first place um, on, um, on Asia. And I think, you know, that there is this sort of long-term aim for China to be in Asia, really, as the US is in the West, if you like. So to restore its sort of primacy and to be a country that that people um, look up to and a country that has real um, economic and sort of leadership clout, if you
1: like. So there's a couple of things that I want to follow up on here. One is that even though you know, you, you've laid it out this way uh, in terms of the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation and, and uh, couched it in terms of, of this much-talked-about Chinese dream or China's dream. Uh, well, you don't really go in for the the alarmism, the the, the what you don't get behind what, some of the stuff that we're reading about the recreation of the tribute system. Uh, in, instead, you you kind of lay it out more like this is what great powers do, and that's that was distinctly my sense. And and when you when you talked about it in terms of American hegemonism in the Western Hemisphere, I think that's a, maybe a closer analogy. Yeah.
2: Um, I think I think that's right, I and mean, I do think there are people in China who do look back to the past, yeah, sure, um, sure, and would like China to have the kind of respect it used to have. You've got to think that sort of back in back in the good old days when China was the you know was the celestial empire, you know it was ringed by tributary states like Korea, Japan, and Vietnam, and they paid respect um, to the emperor. And I think there's an element of that in things like the Belt and Road Forum, you know where Xi Jinping can look like the big man on the global stage and at Davos as well. So there's an element of that, but of course, you know rather than talking about history repeating itself or kind of essentialist notions of, you know, sort of China being the middle country and everyone else looking up to it. I think this is more a case of, you know, this is what happens when when a country becomes economically strong and wants to become a great, great power. And it's only natural that China at this stage, I think, in its its development, wants to carve out a sphere of influence in Asia.
1: And we can understand that without resort to some, you know, invoking some psychocultural urge deeply embedded in the
0: Chinese Um, psyche. Yes,
2: although I do think it is interesting to look at the history. um, But I don't think, you know, that's a small part of it i
1: think yeah absolutely
0: so tom um under the, the rather expansive definition just about everything you write about could fall under belt and road um and you know when we're recording this uh, podcast it's uh, just been uh, about a, a couple of weeks now. since right. the belt and road forum in beijing or bath Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So how do you define the Belt and Road uh, for yourself and, you know, for the purposes of the book? Do you include things like the Southeast Asia high-speed rail uh, projects or or the Golden Triangle Special Economic (laughs) Zone that you talk about in the book?
2: Okay, so I I think in the first place, it's worth saying that really it's not definable. You know, it's so broad and it's been deliberately left very open-ended by Beijing. Um, But what I think we can say... Um, is that you know it, it does consist of two broad things, and that's where we get the name belt and road from. So in the first place, you have the so-called Silk Road Economic Belt, which is about building connectivity in terms of transport um, links, industrial corridors, fibre optic links, you know, power grids, and gas um, pipelines, gas pipelines, roads, railways, even sort of agricultural investments. You name it across the Eurasian continent. Okay, um, then you have the road, which is helpfully at sea, um, but high Ooh, in Chinese, it kind of makes more sense in Chinese, right? But um, So that's called the 21st Century Maritime Silk Road, which is really about boosting trade links and building new trade routes through the South China Sea, south into the South Pacific, but particularly west into the Indian Ocean, along the east coast um, of Africa, and into the Mediterranean, okay? So that's broadly what it means, and sort of, sort of within that, there are a few specific projects and sort of transport routes to give you two obvious examples. One that's been in the news a lot recently, is the China Pakistan Economic Corridor, which winds its way from um, Kashgar in Xinjiang down through the Kunjura Pass uh, on the Pakistani border, and then down to Gwadar, which is a port on the Arabian Sea. Another one is the new Eurasian land bridge, which goes across Xinjiang and through Central Asia, through Kazakhstan, Russia, and into Eastern Europe. And so, you know, we've, we've heard tales of, uh, of freight trains rumbling their way from Iwu on the East Coast all the way to London. But I think you know it's important not to see this as a sort of list of projects that can be ticked off, and actually there is no clear plan because it's constantly evolving, right? So the way this will look depends on the vagaries of corporate deal making um, between um, SOEs and China, also the government in China and companies and governments abroad, you know, and that will change. Plans will be made, some will work and some won't, and there's no official map. There isn't even really an official list of countries because they've op- they've left it very very open ended, you know. There are some. Numbers that the Ministry of Commerce and NDRC have put out there, but they don't explain exactly what the Belt and Road mean. And I think, you know, almost anything in these countries can be included probably within the Belt and the Road. So, frankly, Jeremy, it's it's very unclear, and I think right. deliberately so.
1: Now you call the Belt and Road arguably the most ambitious development plan ever conceived. So, how should our listeners and, and your readers... Think about its scale. You said there are numbers Uh, to, to get a sense of the ambition behind it. Is it comparable, as some people have suggested, to the Marshall Plan?
2: Well, I think it's difficult to make those comparisons. You know, the Marshall Plan was at a certain time in history, and I don't think it's that helpful, actually, to be comparing it to that. You know, we haven't had a big war um, right. in Asia. And, you know, Beijing has explicitly said it's not a Marshall Plan. Right. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think let's look at it – let's look at what it is. And um, in the first place, yes, it does look very ambitious because it's kind of all-encompassing. And I think rather than getting kind of het up on the name Belt and Road – You know, what it really means is Chinese lending and Chinese development and Chinese engineering firms doing stuff in the developing world. That's really what it means. So, you know, not very clear at all, but, you know, China is doing a lot and there's a lot of and skepticism. And that should have
1: been the same, doing stuff in the developing yeah, world. doing stuff
2: in the developing world. You know, there's a lot of skepticism out there, frankly, a bunch of very irritating old white white men who don't really buy any of this and haven't really been anywhere as far as I can see. And I, I find them annoying because stuff really is happening. You know, China is building a lot. Um, let me throw some numbers um, at you. And, you know, all numbers coming out of China should be digging you know, a grain of salt, Absolutely. Right. You've got to be cautious. Okay. But, you know, in 2015, 2015 to 2016, in that two-year period, MOFCOM, the Ministry of Commerce, says that um, China Chinese firms invested roughly $30 billion in Belt and Road countries. Now, it's quite a lot of money. But if you consider that that's only 10% of China's overall overseas um, direct investment or outward direct investment during that period, it gives you an idea that it's big, but you know it's, it's not so big. And so that, that number to me doesn't sound politically inflated. But more importantly, Chinese engineering firms earned revenues of nearly $150 billion in that two-year period. And I think that's what it's more about. It's not so much about Chinese firms taking equity stakes abroad, although they, although they are doing a bit of that. Mm-hmm. It's much more a question of China lending lots of money, mainly through it, through its policy banks, and then Chinese companies, particularly state-owned companies, coming in and building infrastructure.
1: We'll talk about the role of those policy banks, the Exim Bank and, and the China Development Bank in a little bit. But uh, let's, let's talk about the uh, motivations behind the Belt and Road.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, Tom, in your book, you talk about three main motivations for the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, security where China can weave a network of interdependence and make new friends, as well as hedge against the U.S. alliance structure in Asia. Uh, Secondly, economy, where Belt and Road will provide a new source of growth for uh, Chinese domestic industries and a place to uh, absorb overcapacity. And then thirdly, financial, where Belt and Road will bolster the renminbi as a currency for trade settlement. Can we look at each of these and see how compelling the case is?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I'll start with the economic one, because I think, you know, first and foremost, this should be seen as an economic policy.
1: So you've reordered these, and it has been two years since you finished your reporting for the book? Uh,
2: yeah. I mean, I, I, was, I mean, I was doing... Sort of, I was updating things, but it's been two years since I was actually on the ground um, in these countries, although I'm in China a lot. I was there two weeks ago. But um, we'll start with economics. Um, so in the first place, you know, we all know that China's economy is slowing. Yeah, sure. In the last 18 months or so, cyclically, it's bounced back. You know, It's sunny days in Beijing at the moment. But in terms of you know, there is climate change occurring in the Chinese economy. So structurally, um, it is slowing and they're very keen not only to find new sources um, of demand outside china but also to create and nurture new sources um, of demand and in a sense that's what the belt and the road is about it's about taking you know china's own domestic development plans such as you know the go west policy and the go out policy you know and sort of taking them a little step further if you like um, and so, you know, this is important for you know in engineering firms and capital goods um, exporters. No,
1: mm, it was Vladimir Lenin said <laughs> that the, the highest stage of capitalism is belt and roadism. Yes. Uh, yeah, something yes, like that. Uh, kind of, uh, thanks uh, for
2: that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, yeah, but I, I think you know th- this is this is important, but it can be um, exaggerated right. um, a little bit because you know I, I don't think the belt and the road can save Chinese companies engaged in what we call the old economy, um, which you know they're doing okay at the moment moment but you know structurally speaking i think they are going to struggle and it, it, i mean to give you an idea of the numbers involved um, you know, I reckon by having looked at the kind of available financing, and this is a very rough guesstimate and actually I, just, I say I, but really this was my colleague Arthur Krober who, who came up with this number, you know, he reckons that China can probably finance something in the region of maybe up to $100 billion a year along the belt and the road. But in 2015, China was investing more than $150 billion a year at home per month, wow. right? So that gives you an idea of just how much investment there is in China. So. You know, I think anything that th- anything that ha- happens abroad can be helpful, but it's not going to kind of solve the problem of overcapacity right, in China. Right, right. So anyway, that's that's one thing. But I think um, another important economic aspect of this is developing underdeveloped or poorer parts of the Chinese mainland as well. So places like Yunnan and Xinjiang, you know, Guangxi, Heilongjiang, Inner Mongolia, sort of places which are landlocked, often on China's borders. You know, if you take Yunnan, it's you know it's the equivalent of Romania within the EU. It's the second poorest province. Um, in China, and you know what they're trying trying to do is to build new trade routes so that people in Yunnan can trade with their neighbors and they can develop um um economically right. so there's an aspect of that too another that whole thing greater Mekong
1: region that's right, right. yes
2: I mean um, another thing is that China's trying to export standards abroad too so um technology so things like you know high speed rail standards telecoms networks so for example you know huawei and zte are very active across asia you know they're going to be rolling out um 5- 5g um networks so you know they will want other countries to adopt chinese standards if they can pipelines and other things too so that's that's certainly a part of it um but i think there's also a way in which the economic aims kind of um seep into the security aims too and particularly in xinjiang um, where you know uh, China is, rightly or wrongly, um, sorry, I say Beijing is very worried about sort of militant Islam. Right. Terrorism. Before
1: we get to security, there's uh, there is one more thing in sort of the economics of this that I, I want to ask you about. One is: is there really any expectation of repayment from, especially from some of the the poor developing countries to which China is making enormous loans?
2: Right. Well, I think it depends on the on the individual country. I mean, clearly, a lot of these loans are not genuinely made on a commercial basis. Right. right? So, and China. Uh, you know, I, I I heard somebody told me that they gave me an estimate that within Beijing, you know, they reckon that they may may lose up to eighty percent of the money in Pakistan, sort of sort of fifty percent, I think, in Central Asia and thirty percent in Burma. It might have been the other way around. I can't remember exactly. But the point is, and these numbers are, again, they're like estimates. But the point is, is that you know there is. There's a recognition in Beijing that, you know, this is to a certain extent about spending money for strategic reasons. Yeah, India and hears
1: this and gets very nervous. Yes, right. right.
2: So <laughs> India looks at the numbers and thinks, you know, there's going to be no economic payback. You know, that's an exaggeration. There will be, but in some places there won't be. And they think, well, if it's not commercial, then clearly it is strategic. This isn't about win-win sort of economic diplomacy. You know, in fact, this is a Security sm- A smokescreen for strategic control, if right. you like.
1: And so again before we get to security one one more question for you about economics is is we've all read Deborah Rodigum's book about uh, Chinese investment in Africa uh she makes the comparison to what Japan did in China during the 1970s, which was these big infrastructure for resources deals. And China's done the same thing in, in Africa. Are a lot of these deals that they're doing in Central Asia and parts of, of Africa as well, are they sort of along that same vein? We'll build you the port and the mine. You give us the copper, that kind of thing.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, it can work out like that. I mean, I, I, I think normally, you know, you know, they want money back. But, you know, there's always if you're a poor country like Laos and China's building a 7.2 billion railway through Laos and it's being financed out of China, you know, in the end, will they be able to pay back what is the equivalent of two thirds of their GDP you what know in, in cash. So yes, it could become a conveyor belt for exporting resources. And of course you know, the reason why China or one of the major reasons why China is investing somewhere like Kazakhstan is that, you know, it, it has it has oil. So, you know, of course there is a big element um, of wanting resources as a part of this, but it's not the only element.
1: Okay, so let's move to security. I mean, so China has, of course, been part of this SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which has been, in large part, about you know beating the three what is it the the three threats or the three um the three evils the three evils right terrorism and separatism and and religious extremism. But uh, this whole Belt and Road Initiative this gets compared to the Marshall Plan a lot. Like we were saying, uh, Beijing, as you say, doesn't and it insists that it isn't like that because it isn't about Cold War alliance structures and things like that, right? It isn't supposed to be a counterweight to America and its regional allies, but isn't it?
2: Well, I think it might work out like that um, in the end. You know, I, I think that when you're investing a lot and lending a lot of money, you know, it gives you economic leverage. And I think that will translate to a lesser or greater extent in different countries into geopolitical leverage. And you mentioned Central Asia, and I think that's an interesting place for this. So, You know, um, if you look back 25 years now or so, you know, with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, you know, Central Asia had been a part of Russia's backyard. And then, you know, for 10 years, it was kind of left on its own. But then, so starting in, in the early 2000s, you know, China realised there was a lot of resources there, you know, whether it was oil or gas or uranium, lots and lots of stuff there that, that it wanted. And China moved in very, very quickly and is now very much economic top dog in the region. Now, it tries very hard not to step on Russia's toes because Russia is still the major military and political power um, in the region. You know, and China is always willing to work with the Russians if, it, if they can thwart kind of Western power, if you like. You know, Putin and Xi Jinping pretend to be friends. Um, but I think, you know, truly they're kind of frenemies and there's, there's not much trust between Russia and China. And, you know, if Russia ever thought that Chinese influence was was sort of uh, turning not only from sort of an economic influence into something more political, I, I think, you know, that relationship be- could become a lot more fraught. But I think in time it's almost inevitable. you know this is this is what happens when you are a great power. And you know one thing that China's going to realize is that is that if you have assets abroad, you know if things go wrong, you may have to protect those assets. you know this is one of the reasons why the us is is active across the world. And if you're going to be a great a great great power, it brings with it great responsibility and sort of unforeseen Consequences. Sp- speaking of which,
0: Spider Man. Um, um, <laughs> you know what? I
2: had no I I, I really did that. I, I didn't know. Wow. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I,
0: you know, I, I've been editing the subchina.com uh, daily newsletter uh, for a few, well, half a year now. And so I, every day I have to scan in detail the news about China. And one of the things that I've tried to do is to look at things that somehow don't get a great deal of coverage in the, you know, the MSM, the mainstream media, the, the, the kind of anglophone media. And I, one, regularly recurring type of news is unrest along the Belt and Road, basically. Just in the last week, there's been a kidnapping of two Chinese teachers in uh, uh, Pakistan. You have riots in India against Chinese mobile phone companies, in Bangladesh against, you know, a Chinese industrial zone, in Myanmar against a dam in Pakistan and Baluchistan there's a kind of Baluchistan independence movement that is uh, decided that the China-Pakistan economic corridor is not in their interests and are you know organizing demonstrations right. and Guadar uh, port is actually in Baluchistan just here's anyone's wondering <laughs> yeah. yeah um so uh how, how do you think China is going to deal with the fact that you know, the Belt and Road projects, or even just the fact, you know, if you don't call it Belt and Road, just the fact that China is becoming a, a globalized economy with interests all over the world, it, it's going to be drawn into local conflicts, it's going to be perceived as a an economic, if not military hegemon. How How do you think China will respond to this?
2: I mean clearly this is one of the big problems that China um, has to face and as you say you know there have been there's already been been a lot of um, push pushback in countries, particularly where you have the political winds kind of shift you know one of the problems China's had is that um, Chinese soEs and you know the Chinese government, they are very happy, whining and dining, people who are very like them, so you know sort of sort of various leaders in central Asia, um Raja paksa, the former um, leader in Sri Lanka and then w- when you have countries where um, there are elections or you know in Burma you had the military um, junta that dissolved itself, and suddenly people had a voice, then you do get this pushback and it's something that China's going to have to learn to deal with and in a sense it's not only a chinese problem you know this is something that other countries have also had to learn about and i think you know it's worth emphasizing that you know this this is not unique to china its companies um, are often you know they don't have that much experience yet some are more experienced um, than others um, so, for example, if you look at Indonesia, China's building a high speed rail line between Jakarta and Bandung, and they've actually brought in Sino Hydro to help out on that, even though it's not a dam, you know, just simply because they have experience of working in the country and they know how to speak to people there yeah. and There's something that Chinese companies have to get better at. if you look at Burma, you know you mentioned the Mietzone dam, which was this three point something billion dollar dam that was postponed sort of six years ago now, and it's and it remains postponed because of Protests against it, but Three,
1: hundreds of millions of yen were spent, and uh, yeah, they, they uh, were.
2: But then at China Power International, the company that did it, you know, I was speaking to someone, an ex-British diplomat who's now who's who's based there, and she was saying that actually, you know, that they're doing a much better job now, and their sort of CSR policy, whatever you want to call it, is quite sophisticated now. Mm-hmm. So you know, companies, enterprises will learn, and they will have to learn. But of course, there will be big problems along the way. And, you know, I think Beijing is well aware of that. But, you know, I don't think we can downplay those problems. I think Pakistan is going to be the most difficult place of all. You know, in the Pakistani government um, is employing, you know, you hear different numbers, 12, 14, 15,000 troops or sort of security officers to try to protect Chinese workers in the region. But, you know, it's a very unstable environment. And you know, China's been been working in Pakistan for years and you know, even ten, fifteen years ago you had rebels firing rockets at the hotel um, in Gwadar where you know where there are various engineers staying. So, you know, this is gonna be a problem. If you if you look at the Balochs, you know, they're very like the Uyghurs, to be honest, you know, they want sort of independence in their land and they have a big problem with the with the government um in Islamabad. Um, and so, you know, if they attack the big Chinese project in Pakistan, in a way, it's their way. It's a way of attacking the state. So, you know, China will be drawn into kind of conflicts beyond its control. So, yeah, it's very, very complex indeed.
1: Well, I mean, China has stepped up its contributions to UN peacekeeping efforts. It's it's less afraid of late to actually, you know, exercise uh, military force in, in, in the rest of the world. It'll be interesting to see what, what happens there. Uh, we did have one topic that we didn't touch on yet, which was, you said there was sort of a third leg of, of the reasons. And that was finance. Uh, but this is something that isn't quite as important anymore. Uh, the idea that the RMB will be used as a currency for settlement a lot, on a lot of these trade deals, they've sort of backbearing this, as we were saying, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, if you go back a few years ago, internationalization of the RMB was a big topic. Right. Um, And I think long term, nothing's changed. You know, China would like its currency to be sort of akin to a Deutschmark or a kind of euro across across Asia in time, right? This is all a part of the kind of scheme for China to be great again, if you like to put it into Trumpian terms, which is what Xi Jinping is trying to do. And so that you know, so so that, that long term goal is still there, but I think right now it's been put on the back burner for a little bit. You know, this is related to fears about capital um, outflows right. in China. You know, they've been stemmed for the moment, but at the moment, but you know, the moment it's 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 all about sort of protecting the value of, of the RMB. Um, so you know, they, they they don't want to open the capital account any more than they need to. So yeah, it's it's a long term plan, but at the moment, you know, if you, if you look at the loans across the region, they're basically all in dollars at the moment.
1: Right, So I want to talk about some of the institutions that China has created, which some have suggested are meant to, um, well, certainly to supplement, but uh, possibly to supplant the old Bretton Woods institutions, the World Bank and the IMF. Uh, let's start with the AIIB, which, of course, is uh, you, you describe this as kind of a, a third way between membership in, in broad multinational organizations where China lacks, yeah. you know, kind of sufficient I mean, time and, and bilateral relations. Yeah, so.
2: I, I think I might say first when it comes to supplanting Bretton Woods, I think I might have been the first person to write that and, and I think, you know, I, I might have exaggerated a little bit for effect. So, you know, I mean, the way I see the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank is is sort of China's attempt to complement or supplement the existing global architecture right. rather than to rewrite it, if you like, because I don't think China's in a position to do that yeah, yet. No, no, certainly not. But it's, it's you know, it's it's very helpful for china to work with other countries you know in a sort of multilateral organization because you know one of the big problems with the belt and the road and sort of china's infrastructure diplomacy in general is that it's simply not trusted. So China talks about win-win, sort of mutual benefits, but other countries, a lot of countries see it more as a double win to China, right? right. And so you know, th- that's what happens if China's working on a bilateral basis. But if it can work on a multilateral basis, you know, sort of with other countries, in other words, then suddenly it looks a lot less scary. Well,
1: let's talk about how, how this happened with the AIIB. Uh, there was this initial pushback against it, led by the Obama administration, which everyone basically is in unanimous agreement is, is, was, was a, a, a bad mistake. With the effect of, of actually bringing in many of these developed Western countries like Britain and Germany as founding members of the AIAB has meant better governance, has meant China is merely sort of primus into Paris uh, as one of the founding members, maybe the one that's putting up. A large proportion of the initial funding, but they're not making all the, all the loan decisions.
2: No, and I mean, so I think the the um I think the bank or the Chinese bank, as it was originally called by by people at the Asian Development Bank, who are very scared about this. Right. You know, it's 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 a very it's going to be very very responsible. It's going to do everything right. You know, the bank is full of ex um world world bankers and people in the ADB, British diplomats, etc. 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 And you know, I don't think China or Beijing ever thought it would attract so many members from the developed world. Right. So you know they are literally stakeholders in the bank and have a say in how it, how it operates, and actually the bank has dissociated itself from the belt and the road. You know it was originally conceived as a financing vehicle for Chinese infrastructure diplomacy. <laughs> but it's what um, it's two you know, billion dollars yeah, a year, right? right. right. So yeah. I mean, but but so so these days it's kind of separate. And also you know it's symbolically important because it, it it shows that China now is willing to go out there and try to sort of. Mold the global architecture that it wants to be a leader. Okay, but in terms of the Belt and the Road, it's it's kind of it's you know it's kind of. Irrelevant, you know. So, so Genito and the 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 man in charge of the bank, you know, says that it won't lend more than two billion dollars a year right. for the first five years. Now, you know, if we're talking about in the region of up to China financing investments of a hundred billion, you know, that is peanuts. So, most of the financing for these projects will come from China's policy banks. So that's China Development Bank um, and China Exim Bank. Can you tell us about those, Tom? Actually,
1: yeah, we did say that we were going to get to that. So, yeah, t- t- talk about the role of the Exim Bank.
2: Right, so um, you know, I, I think to give a little bit of kind of context for this, um, you know, uh, ch- China wants to be a leader in the region, um, and you know, what does China have? Well, it has enormous economic heft, and that economic heft really comes through its banks. You know, China has a population of one point four billion people, you know, and they save a lot of money. Also, of course, it has a large current account surplus too, so it has its forex reserves. So there's lots of money there, okay? But so, how do you get that money? Out of the economy into these other countries. Well, you know, you can do it through the commercial banks. But of course, you know they are meant to be vaguely commercial. Now we all know that China's banking system, you know, has problems. But still, you know, those banks do want to make a kind of economic return. But China has policy banks, which are there to do the bidding of the government, if you like. Now, of course, they don't want to—they don't want to lose pots of money too. Although they have done in places like Venezuela. Um, <laughs> but you know, they are—they are policy banks, so they are there to deliver government policy. And you know, this—this this is government policy. And I've spoken about the economic rationale for—for for doing this, but there is a big. Strategic rationale too, and so you know th- that's those those strategic investments will largely be funded through China's policy banks.
1: Uh, how how well capitalized are these banks? How, what are we talking about here?
2: Well, um, it, it's the, the uh, their finances are kind of murky, um, but you know, um, they lend every year far more than the World Bank and ADB um, um put together. So that gives you an idea of how large they are. Right, uh, we're we talking so hundreds of it. hundreds of billions of dollars.
1: Astonishing.
0: Uh, and you say they lend already. Uh, uh, who who are the recipients of these loans?
2: Right. So. So the recipients um, are governments and companies abroad. Um, I, I think a good example to look at here is Sri Lanka, um, which you know until t- till January 2015 was under the leadership of a very unpleasant man you know really a kind of murderous dictator in many respects a guy called Mahinda Rajapaksa but chinese companies chinese state owned enterprises worked very closely with his government and you know over a sort of 5 or 10 year period the numbers again are not very clear but you know they 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 lent in the region of 5 billion dollars and, and they lent at crazy interest rates. So, you know, China is often seen as, as, as lending at sort of below commercial value with no strings attached loans. But actually, it was quite the opposite in Sri Lanka. So I interviewed the Ministry of Finance there, a big kind of barrel-chested man who told me that China, in some cases, was was lending at 8.8%, which is really very, very high
1: indeed. Um, why, why on earth would they turn to China then for such high interest loans? I mean, was it just a, a lack of, of available credit from, from other lenders? Well,
2: yes. In the first place, nobody else wanted to lend to this Nazi regime. But you know the reason that China was lending at that rate was that it was siphoning off um, a, a lot of that money into the pockets of Rajapaksa and, and his cronies. And this is something that the government there told me explicitly. And so they said you know, China was doing all these corrupt deals essentially with, with, the pre- pre- with the previous government. They said it wasn't China's fault. They had to work with the government. So they were being um, di- diplomatic in their language. But they said that now we have a new government in place. We have to re- renegotiate and restructure all of those loans. They have to take a haircut on their debt, blah, blah, blah. And to some extent that has happened. But they also said that we don't have to only accept Chinese money. We can look to the Americans, the Europeans, the Japanese, the World Bank, the ADB, all these all these other places, India. In the event, though, not much money came in from these other countries right. and Sri Lanka had to go to, to the IMF to get bailed out. And then a year on, you know, various sort of postponed projects, um, Chinese projects in Sri Lanka are back on course. You know, Sri Lanka's has begun, begun swapping debt for equity in, say, for example, Hambantota port in the south um, of the island. And, and actually, you know, China's position there is as strong as ever. And during the election in, in 2015, China's grip on the country became an election issue. It wasn't so much an issue among the ordinary people, but if you look, looked at the manifesto of the incoming government, you know, they spoke about being colonised um, by the white man and they very much implied there was a new coloniser. They didn't actually say the yellow man, but, you know, they, that's what they were implying, that there was a, that there was a new coloniser um, on, um, on the horizon.
1: Of course. Sri Lankans uh, who were who were opposed to the old regime and are worried about China aren't the only people in the region worried about China building, for example, a very very large port in Sri Lanka. It's probably the biggest, brightest, and closest pearl in the so-called string of pearls that India worries so much about. Talk a little bit about Indian concerns. Uh, over what China is doing, especially in the Indian Ocean.
2: Right. So, uh, yeah, I think India has two concerns. Um, In the first place, and I think this is the biggest concern, is the idea that China is building a string of pearls around the neck of Mother India, if you like. So, you know, China has ports in Colombo and Hambantota in Sri Lanka. There's Gwadar port in the Arabian Sea in Pakistan. You know, it has an interest um, in Karachi port as well. There's a port at Chalk Pew on Made Island in the Bay of Bengal, which is on the Burmese coast. You know, there are other interests in places like um, Bangladesh as well, and you know, China's always looking for new ports. Now I think, you know, most of these ports are actually, you know, commercial. So for example, the Colombo South Container Terminal, which I visited, it's owned by China Merchants, which is a Hong Kong listed company. Yeah, it's you know, sure, its mother company is uh, is a Beijing SOE. But you know, this is a commercial port. In fact, it's probably the best port. Certainly from sort of in in South India. You know, it is possibly the best port actually. Um, in oh, South Asia yeah. you know, uh, uh, certainly in the Indian Ocean it has the biggest gantry cranes in the world along with um, Shanghai to give you an idea and you know it can very very large vessels can dock there at the same time the, a couple of years ago a Chinese nuclear powered sub a PLA um, naval vessel did dock there for water and food but the Indians got very nervous about this because you know they, they reckon that you, you you know these ports may be ostensibly commercial but if they have a dual purpose if they can be used um, in the event of a war or you know for military Purposes, or for kind of listening in, you know, in, in the region, that does worry them, and you know they do believe that China has long-term ambitions to push its a navy into the Indian Ocean. And clearly, that's true. At the same time, though, I do think India exaggerates the threats. You know, China is nowhere near being able to be a genuine presence in in the Indian Ocean. It's decades off. And I think it's also a very useful way for the Indian military to try to get more cash out of out of New Delhi. You know that, that that that's what you know armies need, if you like. So I think it's kind of overplayed, and you know China will always struggle to be a big presence in the Indian Ocean. You know, sort of it's it's Indian territory, if you like. It's it's India's backyard, and they will always be bigger there. But there is another concern too, which has been in the press a lot recently, and that's the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which in the north does run through Kashmir. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sort of of part of Kashmir that India claims as its sovereign territory. So, you know, it does talk about sovereignty um, sovereignty issues. I think it's a bit of an exaggeration here again, because, you know, Kashmir is an old problem. You know, it, it dates back to partition back in 1947. You know, this is an old problem and nothing's really changed. But anything that kind of sort of cements... You know, and that on that region as sort of Pakistani territory, if you like, you know, is something that they're going to complain about. But you know, the, the, there's already there's already been a road there. You know, the road through through the Kunderab Pass, which crosses over into into China, was built in the 1970s and 80s. You know, so this isn't a new it's problem.
1: Also, not the first time that there's been a major transport route through parts of Kashmir that India claims. For example, you know, the, the road that links Lhasa and and then Urumqi runs straight through. Uh, the, the yeah, I mean, this t- is
0: this is an old problem. Right, um, right,
1: right, right, right. Interesting.
0: You you wrote your book before the uh, global disaster uh, <laughs> that we like to call the Trump clownship. Um, what's changed uh, since Trump became president of the U.S.
2: Yeah, so I mean, I did write sort of ninety nine percent of the book before Trump was elected. You know, I I did manage to make a sort of a couple tiny changes in November um, of last year, just before it came out. It was kind of irritating, but fundamentally, it hasn't changed the picture for what China's doing, except to make China's position stronger than it was. And I think TPP, um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, is is a very important element of this. So you know, this was a this was a mega trade deal led by the U.S., um, encompassing a hand. Full of countries in Asia, including Japan, um, and some countries um, in the Americas. But you know, the the U.S. at the time um, very much saw this in geopolitical terms. Yeah, and so- Ash
1: Carter didn't he say? the TPP is worth an aircraft carrier. That's to right. So
2: Ash Carter, the secretary of defense right, that's right. Under um, at Obama. the time said that it was, it was worth an extra aircraft carrier um, to him. So, you know, that, that's, you know, that's explicitly saying this was a geopolitical ploy. If you like, it was a way that America could kind of recommit to the, to, to the region. And, you know, of course it has a strong alliance structure in the region, but it has to, you know, you, you have to water your crops. If, if you like, you have to show people that you still care. You want to be a leader. And that's very much what TPP was doing. Now, you know, during the leadership, um, campaign. And Trump, you know, sort of um, sp- sort of spoke about possibly withdrawing U.S. troops from South Korea, from Japan, and you know, sort of said that those countries should should get their own um, nuclear deterrent. <laughs> no, um, s- since since he came um, into power, the you know, his um, his administration has gone some way to recommitting to the region, but it certainly hasn't shown himself to be a kind of reliable partner. So I think militarily, you know, the U.S. is still top top dog in the region. You know, it does have military alliances with. Korea, with Japan, with the Philippines, with Australia, you know, and it's, it's getting closer to India, to Vietnam. And so, you know, if you're China, you, you do look out and you see yourself ringed by enemies, if you like. And I think it's important to kind of realize that because people forget. Um, so, militarily at least, you know, the US is still the leading power. But I think in terms of economic leadership, China is in a much stronger position now than it was a few years ago. So, you know, Trump withdrew from the TPP. In its place, the only other big mega trade deal on the table RCEP. is the Regional yeah. Comprehensive Economic Partnership, RCEP. Now this is very different because RCEP is the, includes the 10 ASEAN countries, so that also adds Indonesia, which is a big, big economy into the mix, but also the six countries with which ASEAN has free trade agreements, which includes China, which wasn't in TPP, right. and Korea. And this is a big big deal. I mean, Japan was in TPP, but you know, Japan now that TPP is dead, it is now pushing much harder for RCEP. Um, And you know, this is this is in terms of regional integration. This is much more of a sort of Asian. It's much more of an Asian,
1: um, right? It's, um, it's not deal Chile and r- Peru, ra- Yes, right.
2: rather rather than Asian Pacific, right. um, and it's important because you know China's economy is about makes up about half the GDP of the RCEP countries, and, and so although officially RCEP is led by the ASEAN nations, which is useful for China because it's multilateral, it doesn't look like China sort of making all the decisions. Inevitably, China being by far the most powerful economy. In RCEP, it'll have a big say, right? So, if you're China, you're using the Belt and Road to try to integrate Asia in terms of on the ground infrastructure. This now is another institution by which you know you can help to integrate Asia, you know, with this kind of aim of you know what I call China's Asian dream, which is for China to be you know the economic leader of the region, and that also has a geopolitical impact. So, you know, Trump has shot himself in the foot, frankly. It's a very,
1: very foolish policy. Well, I mean, th- th- to be fair. Clinton planned on pulling out of TPP as well. She did equally foolish. Right, equally foolish. Uh, so let's—I mean, since we're on the subject of American responses to to this, Jeremy and I had the the terrific opportunity to interview Joe Nye, who is a professor at, at Harvard's Kennedy School and probably best known for this concept of soft power, which he he both coined and defined. But we we talked about that, of course, about Chinese soft op- power opportunities in the age of Trump. But we also talked about uh, the, the well-known Thucydides trap. And a trap that he actually uh, is is more concerned about, which he calls the Kindleberger trap. It's named for Charles, uh, Charlie Kindleberger, who's an MIT historian of economics and and a principal architect of, of the Marshall Plan. Uh, we weren't really talking about the Marshall Plan, but I mean, his idea, just in a nutshell, is that the disasters of the 1930s, the Depression and and what followed rise of fascism, even the Holocaust, all really resulted from America as the, the rising power in the world after the, the, the decline of the UK after the Great War. Uh, its failure to provide public goods in the world—that it, it wasn't providing the stable currency that the UK no longer could. It wasn't, you know, part of of multinational organizations. We failed to ratify—I mean, to even join the League of Nations and pass the Smoot-Hawley tariffs, right? Uh, and you know, I mean, I, I got to thinking. We didn't really discuss this in any, in any depth, but I, I got to thinking about this and wondered whether we might see. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative as China's provision of public goods. I mean, to what extent can we see these as public goods?
2: Right. Well, I think in the first place, um, you know, China says everything it's doing is mutually um, beneficial and good for everyone else. But of course, you know, what China is doing is in the first place for China's own good. You know, it mm-hmm. is self-motivated. Mm-hmm. Totally natural. And of course, right. it is. You know, every country, frankly, foreign policy. Ought to be self-motivated, all right. At the same time, though, I think it's it is worth pointing out that China can certainly help provide useful development or public goods, if you like, to poor countries that have little sort of financing capability or engineering or, or capacity, engineering capacity uh, themselves, all right. So, if, for example, you're Tajikistan, if you're Kyrgyzstan, if you're Laos, you know, these small, fragile states. China can come in and build what you need. So, for example, in Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, you know, China has built the power grid, and it's also built um, a spur from its gas pipeline from Turkmenistan, um, through those countries. So it's providing power to them as well. Literally so,
1: keeping the lights. Yeah, off. so I'd like
2: say literally keeping keeping the lights on. Okay, and you know, so if you're a leader of those countries, that's very helpful, and it means you can provide public goods which you couldn't otherwise provide. So perhaps that actually keeps them in power. So it's you know, it's it's also it's useful politically, and that does give. China China political leverage um in those countries as well. And it's true that you know so that China can bring big benefits through its infrastructure. Equally, you know, if this is not carried out in a sensible manner, it can also bring much harm as well. So like an obvious example is dams, you know, you can bring electricity as much needed, but you know, if you're damming people's land and you're not compensating them, then you know there will be a lot of pushback against that too. So, you know, I I think that it's not wrong when Beijing, you know, sort of I present this as a as a development plan. Um, you know, it, it it really is. But equally, you know, some people talk about one belt, one trap. So you know, if you're a country that takes on too much debt, you may struggle to pay it back.
1: Right. Djibouti, for example.
2: For example, yeah. Actually, there's also another meaning of one of one belt, um, one trap, and this is something that Jörg Furtka, who's the the chairman of the European Chamber of Commerce in Beijing, likes to um, talk, talk about. He's one of the most experienced foreign businessmen um, in China, and you know he he speaks often to very um, senior executives in SOEs, and you know there are uh, there are plenty of uh, Chinese executives, and also in the policy banks and commercial banks too, particularly who are worried about the political pressure that's been put on them to lend and do business in countries where they're not going to make any money. So it's also a debt trap for them as well.
1: But there are real things happening here, as you point out. It's not just fakery, but how would you characterize the response of the American punditry to this? I mean, it, it, it strikes me as fairly cynical.
2: Right. I, I think the punditry across America, and actually even more so in Europe, because Europe is sort of officially um, on the belt and the road, if you like, has been very, very cynical indeed. And, you know, I, I think it's right to be sceptical, Um, um and you know there is a lot of kind of puffery involved in this you know um the, the, the belt and road forum was a big pr push if you like and you know a lot of beijing's plans are not very well defined and you know there have been lots of instances in the past of chinese investments going wrong and so you know as i say we should be skeptical at the same time though there is real stuff happening whether it brings a commercial return or not will depend on the initial project. But it is a fact that, you know, last year, 1,700 trains made the journey across um, Central Asia from China to Europe, okay? Now, is this meaningful in terms of China's global trade? No, not yet. But is it meaningful to some of those countries? Yes, it is. You know, China is now exporting directly, for example, to Afghanistan, Iran, through its trains. It is building a a new railway through Laos. You know, Laos has almost no infrastructure at all to speak of um, at the moment. If you go to Cambodia, you know, one in three roads in that country have been built by Chinese money. You know, there's, there's, there's one lovely thing. If you go to Phnom Penh, um, there's a bridge that crosses the Mekong River there, which was built 20 or 30 years ago by the Japanese because, you know, uh, you know Japan was there before China. What China's doing is, is not entirely new. And actually, you know, I talk about a sort of infrastructure arms race in the region between Japan and China. Mm-hmm. But so if you look at that old bridge, sort of literally two or 300 yards parallel with it, there's a brand new, bigger, shinier Chinese built <laughs> bridge, right? So, but the point is, is that, you know, China is really building useful infrastructure. It's not all a waste of money. And you have to realize that. I think a lot of the skepticism comes from people, sort of analysts looking at this from 30,000 feet who never get off their butts and go anywhere.
0: Some of it reminds me a little of, uh, you know, the skepticism you saw around domestic Chinese infrastructure projects. I mean, I, I remember people scoffing at the idea of the Fifth Ring Road in Beijing, as, you know, a kind of white elephant, you know, boondoggle when there were farmlands, you know, right around it. Whereas now the fifth ring road is, uh, you know, lot. doesn't move because of traffic jams and, you know, they're, they've, they're building the seventh ring road and thinking about the eighth.
2: Yeah, no, um, I think what China's doing, and this is actually why people are so skeptical, is that really it's taking its own development model, which is debt-fueled and sort of very high investment, and shifting it o- overseas. And so the people who are always bearish about that model of development in China will feel the same way about this overseas. And, you know, there was a big row back in, it would have been sort of six or seven years ago now, about high, high-speed rail in China. So people saw this as being a massive waste of money. You know, why was it building expensive high High speed rail rather than building conventional rail and those people who are critics then are still critics now frankly they, 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 they think that the financial return on high-speed rail um, hasn't been worth it whereas you know any sane person I think who takes high-speed rail in China thinks that it's been magnificent right. But that's probably you know that reflects my own personal biases. Uh, but I think it's very similar for these for these projects abroad. You know the way Beijing views economics is not the same way as Western bankers view it. It's not about getting financial returns. There are other returns it's looking for too: returns of development, um, returns of economic opportunity.
0: But don't, don't don't you think one of the interesting uh, aspects to this uh, push abroad for the the Chinese development model, if you will, is that. You know, in China, if you want to build a high-speed rail, you can move all the peasant farmers from their land who are in the way of the high-speed rail. You can marshal a huge labor force of people willing to work for a rather low salary. You can sort of make it happen by fiat. Whereas in Pakistan or Myanmar, you might not find the locals so receptive to having a dam or high-speed rail uh, project built across their land. You might not find the workers as uh, willing to work their butts off, you know, seven days a week for a pittance. You're going to find a lot more obstacles to creating uh, these uh, massive in- infrastructure projects. And and, and and to be honest, I mean, China
1: has not had a great track record of diplomatic sensitivity or or sort of a political finesse when it comes to things like this, right?
2: No, I think that's all true. And, you know, I can point to an example at the moment. If you look at Indonesia and the high-speed rail, rail there, it's been constantly delayed because, you know, it's very difficult to to buy up land and get people off their land. And so, yes, this is a problem. I mean, another thing that China has, that other countries don't, except for India, which isn't really a part of this at the moment, is that it has lots of people. And so you know, uh, um, it, you can build stuff in China, and people will come eventually because of the population pressures. You know that that won't be the case in someone like Central Asia, which is a big open space. And so you know, China does have to I keep on saying China or Beijing. You know, it, often these decisions are made by enterprises. Right. But you know, it is something it has to think about. So the the model can't be exactly the same. But you know, the I think the the, the kind of the broad way they they think about it is pretty ingrained um, in, in the kind of psyche in Beijing.
1: I'm reminded of this beautiful quote from your last book I believe it was where you talked about white elephants and how the Chinese metabolism is sort of fast enough to digest a few white elephants. Yeah.
2: Um, absolutely yes and, and also the fact that it doesn't you know w- when China was growing fast it didn't matter actually if it had a right. few um, white um, white elephants yeah. But I mean of course you know if you have a very large white elephant in a small country then actually then that can matter enormously.
1: Right. I mean unless you import Chinese enzymes to digest the thing.
2: Yeah. yeah. One that, one thing, Jeremy, um, to go back to your previous question about, you know, sort of workers, you know, in, in the kind of smaller um, states, China can import a lot of workers, you know, and it's doing that in places like Kyrgyzstan and Laos. The, the, the countries where they have a stronger government, somewhere like Kazakhstan with more money, you know, they don't let in Chinese workers unless they're um, sort of managers and engineer, sort, of, sort of engineering foreman, if you like. But, you know, no, there, there are enough Chinese workers who can be persuaded to go, to go abroad and work for pittance as they do across Africa as well.
1: That's right. Tom, man, it was absolutely great to have you here in North Carolina. I trust you enjoyed the barbecue. Thanks.
2: And- great pleasure. Fantastic um, barbecue, and I'll be back.
1: Yeah, uh, and uh, please do come back. And join us for a recommendation for our listeners, won't you? Yeah, sure. So before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at, at news and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SubChina News. If you like this cynical podcast, by all means, go leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes Store or on Google Play or wherever it is that you go to review apps. This really helps. and It means a lot to us, too. So, on to recommendations. Jeremy, as long as you can quiet that child down, you can begin.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I have a BBC <laughs> moment here. I have two children who have invaded <laughs> my home studio. Um, uh, so, I'd like to recommend... It's called Ear to Asia. It's a podcast from... Viola, keep quiet. Uh, it's a podcast from uh, the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. Uh, and they interview uh, people who know stuff about Asia, um, uh, you know, academics mostly. Uh, but really interesting, you know, from China. Sorry, I, I really, these children. Um, <laughs> um, you know, from folk music uh, like work songs in Sichuan uh, to Indonesia's education system—a uh, great range of expertise. It's called Ear to Asia. Yeah, it's a very uh, good podcast. Yeah.
1: Uh, um, so you 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 uh, had one episode in particular you wanted to recommend, right?
0: Uh, yeah, there's one with uh, Professor Anne McLaren uh, about her work into the folk ecology, as she calls it, of the lower Yangtze Delta, uh, um, you know, which includes uh, these very long song cycles uh, sung by uh, people, uh, you know, working mostly. Um, yeah. And very interesting. Those are on
1: the, re- the actual recording, too, so make sure to... Yeah, it includes a few songs. Great recommendation. It's a, yeah, It's an excellent podcast. Tom, what do you have for us?
2: I have an autobiography to recommend by Xiaolu Guo or Guo Xiaolu. Um, so she is a very very interesting woman who was brought up in a dirt poor fishing village um, on the Zhejiang Fujian um, border, but but An uh,
1: island some little. Well, it was island it or, was it wasn't or... it wasn't
2: actually it was it was just on the coast. But, uh, okay. uh, but um and then she made her way to the Beijing Film Academy and then got a scholarship to the to the UK and lived in London and it's it's about her kind of her way up in life. But it's 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 a uh, it's a fascinating book. But I think what's most interesting really is a a novel she read a couple, a couple of years ago, which is sort of semi-auto um, a biographical and it's based on her experiences and it's called A Concise Chinese English Dictionary for Lovers. Um, and it's a great
1: title. It's by a great the title.
2: Way. So so um right, so the kind of conceit of the book is is that you, you have a a, um, a new Chinese um immigrant in a strange foreign country who learns English by writing a book. Okay, so the book starts off with sort of Chinese syntax written um um in English and she's looking at London through the eyes of of a foreigner. Um, and you know there are some very kind of funny phrases in it. I mean, if you're if you speak Chinese, so for example, you know she's 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 she's, she's looking for um, Big Ben, you know the clock, and she says, "Where's that big silly clock?" Which is what big it's called, um, which is what it's called in <laughs> Chinese, for example. But as the book goes on, the syntax improves and English improves. Um, but it's just a fa- it's a fascinating way of seeing my own country afresh, and I'd thoroughly um, recommend it.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She's she, uh, we we all I think we all know her, right? Or even even.
2: I, I don't know her, but I believe okay. you do, or, right, or right.
1: did. Jeremy, you know her right now.
2: Yes. Anyway,
1: great, uh, great recommendation. I, I, I need to get to that. Oh, sorry,
2: uh, I should give the name of the book, actually, the autobiography.
1: Right, right, which is called?
2: Right, it's called, uh, it has different names, I think, in the UK and, and the US. Um, in the UK, it's called Once Upon a Time in the East. In the US, I believe it's called Nine Continents.
1: Interesting. Jojo. Yeah. Good, I think, good, good, I think. Good. Both good names. Yeah. Uh, I am going to recommend a Swedish folk trio called Vasin. Uh, which is composed of a, a guitarist, a violist, and most importantly, a masterful player of the nickel harpa. You, have you heard of the? <laughs> the you heard of the, the nickel harpa? For some reason, it's very popular these days. I keep seeing you know people passing around YouTube videos of people who. who is that as cool
2: as the matotian?
1: It's no. <laughs> cooler in a way. So it's a kind of keyed fiddle. So you you play it with a bow. It sounds sort of like a shimmering, crazily bright violin. Uh, it's really full throated and it's. Sounds like a Yeah, but but. Uh, it's actually keyed. That is, you, you depress keys, which act as the frets, uh, sort of. So it's, it's, I don't know how you do a vibrato on it. They somehow are able to, but it, it sounds terrific. Uh, Vasin, this, this band sounds vaguely Celtic, a uh, bit like Appalachian folk music. Jeremy, I think you would really dig it. But they actually have a, a really different rhythmic sense. Um, it, it's quite progressive in that. I mean, it. it, it I, I now listen to. I mean, I listen to a lot of Swedish metal bands, and I sort of see now where their indigenous folk influences come from. It's it's very cool, um, weird time signatures and starts and stops. So anyway, I downloaded a bunch of the stuff on Spotify. I've been listening to them basically nonstop. It's great music. Great music. Uh, thanks to Jim Millward for turning me on to them. Anyway, hey, Tom, once again, thanks so much, man. Uh, get out there and read Tom's book. I, I swear, this is, it's incredibly edifying. It, and this is, it's more timely than ever. I mean, if you really want to understand uh, China's developmental ambitions in Asia, this is the book to read.
2: Um, could I give you the full title as well of the name?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah, the, yeah. So,
2: so the full name is China's Asian Dream, Empire Building Along the New Silk Road.
1: Right. Although, you know, you use the word empire once in the whole book, right? And it's in quotes.
2: I was very careful because, you know, I don't think that China is genuinely building a sort of, you know, an old-fashioned um, empire. But,
1: you sell you know, copy this way.
2: Yeah. But in terms of, um, you know, what it's trying trying to do is to build a trade, um, an investment nexus lubricated by Chinese cash. And it's trying to push its economic leverage and create kind of mutual dependencies. And I think we can talk, talk about a sort of informal economic empire, if you like.
1: Yeah. Very, very good. So yeah, definitely go out and check it out the check out the book. I mean, I read it months ago. I, I'm, I'm probably going to read it again. It's very good. Jeremy, as always, very good to talk to you. Likewise, love to your your, your beautiful children. the uh, The cynical podcast is powered by Subchina and it's produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Thanks also to Enla Cheng and to Sarai Darabi from Subchina. Drop Viola, us in- stop it! <laughs> drop us an email at syneca at SubChina.com visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast thanks for listening and we will see you next week take care